Hi, everyone. I'm Kyle Dyer, and welcome to Colorado Inside Out on this Friday, September the 8th. Let me start by introducing this week's panel. We have Patty Calhoun, the founder and editor of Westward. Also, David Kopel, research director at the Independence Institute. Ed Sealover, the VP of Strategic Initiatives at the Colorado Chamber of Commerce, and also the editor of the Chamber's online news site, The Sum and Substance. And then we have George Brockler, former DA for the 18th Judicial District and current morning show host on KNUS. 710 radio. With Labor Day now behind us, election season is starting to pick up and some speed when communities across Colorado because November 7th is election day here. Municipalities in Colorado, except for Denver and the Springs, are electing leaders and there are a lot of local issues as well. And there are also two statewide referendums for us all to consider. But because of some things that transpired this week, we're also talking about the 2024 election cycle. Patty, let's start with you. Well, we thought our big news on the national front was that a cat in Colorado is trying to get on the ballot to run for president. So that started the week in a very exciting way. But now, with the lawsuit just filed to try to get Trump off any potential Colorado ballot for president, it's really fascinating to watch the national coverage of it. It's a group of Coloradans with a Colorado attorney working with a D.C. firm, and obviously David will talk about the legalities of it, but saying he cannot be on the ballot because of the 14th Amendment. So it's an amazing story, and it's coming down right as we're hearing CNN's polling with Biden going down among Democrats, Trump going down a bit, but still the number of people who have no problem considering voting for a man who at least endorsed an insurrection on January 6th at, at the U.S. Capitol. No problem voting for him. So it is looking like a wild November 2024, and a cat, I guess, would be a relief. <laughs> so let's talk about mm. the legality of this lawsuit. Okay. The K, and I think it is a credible lawsuit. I'm not predicting a result, but it's, does it have a, a reasonable basis in court? Yes. The 14th Amendment, adopted after the Civil War, Section 3, says, no person shall hold any office under the United States or under any state who, having previously taken an oath uh, to support the Constitution of the United States, shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same or given aid and comfort to the enemies thereof. So let, let's take a look at, at who's involved in this. The plaintiffs in this case, um, and the, this is a lawsuit brought by the plaintiffs against Colorado Secretary of State Griswold to seek a court order that she keep Trump off the, the primary election ballot in Colorado next spring. So some of the plaintiffs uh, are Krista Kafer, super high credibility in my view. Uh, Norma Anderson, uh, former Senate Majority Leader, solid Republican. Um, some others who were less so. Um, attorneys in this are locally include Martha Tierney, who is responsible for the abomination of the disastrously written gift to, gift to public officials amendment to the state constitution. Great idea incompetent execution. The main attorneys are this group in Washington, it's an acronym called CREW, a left-wing hacktivist pseudo-ethics organization uh, designed to uh, oppress Republicans, but sometimes they win their cases. On the other side, Secretary Griswold will be defended by the Colorado Attorney General Phil Weiser. The 
you know, obviously Griswold and, and Weiser are, are very anti-Trump, but the Attorney General and Weiser, to his credit, uh, continues this, the Attorney General tradition of anytime you sue the state of Colorado, we will defend it zealously and protect the unlimited discretion or whatever of uh, government officials. So I, I expect that this will not be a suit where, you know, Wiser takes a dive or anything like that. It'll be, be met by a, a vigorous defense. And you can add on top of that that it's actually an in interest of both uh, Jenna Griswold and Phil Wiser for Donald Trump to be the Republican nominee in the general election because he's poisonous uh, to down-ballot Republicans in Colorado. The theory of the case comes from a law review article written by two eminent conservative law professors, Will Bodd uh, at Chicago, who's my co-blogger at the Volat Conspiracy, Michael Paulson, very, very strong conservative with a long record. Here's the key problem with their case. They talk all about insurrection in the complaint, and they, they show some you know, facts supporting that. But we have a federal statute that defines and punishes Insurrection, 18 United States Code, Section 2873. Nobody involved in January 6th has even been charged with that offense. You know, they've been throwing the book at these people for every possible thing, getting, you know, tremendously long sentences, and yet nobody's even been charged with this. And likewise, the federal indictment of Trump growing out of the January 6th events likewise doesn't even allege a violation of this statute. One more thing, whatever the results are, I predict we will see more of it seeking ballot disqualifications for people. And if we're gonna do this, it can and should be applied to people, elected officials, who aided, abetted, gave aid and comfort to uh, the violent mobs that attacked the Denver City and, Council, City and Council building in 2020, who made it impossible for the state capitol to open, and who have, in other places, invaded state legislatures and stopped them from being able to function. Okay. Ed. Ditto. No, just kidding. Um, I, uh, since Dave has kind of gone over the legal aspect of this, I think it's fair to focus on the political aspect of this, because I think what this does is it almost opens up a little bit more the ability for Republicans to now come out and say, and, and I, I use the word come out like they're coming out from a, a scary place where they've been hiding, um, and say, maybe I'm not for Trump. Uh, maybe that we need to look at this, and, and, and we can be vocal and say, our fellow Republicans, including, as he mentioned, a former Senate Majority Leader, are, are asking for this to happen. Maybe I can now say I'm not going to back him either. I think it's I think it's going to be a couple keys here. I mean, you're looking at um, how could this affect the third CD Republican primary, um, where you've got Lauren Boebert, as, as big a Trump fan as America has, uh, being being challenged by an attorney uh, from Grand Junction who's backed by the likes of no less than former U.S. Senator Hank Brown. Does this give that kind of challenge? more credibility. Um, does it help uh, a close district? I, I think worth noting, uh, State Representative Gabe Evans, who is, you know, acquitted himself very well in his first year in the legislature in terms of being someone who can thoughtfully discuss issues, has jumped in to run against Yadira Caraveo uh, in the 8th CD, uh, assuming he can win that primary. That's going to make that a tight race. And, and does this get people to look at him as more than a guy with an R after his name uh, who might be a Trump supporter? So um, I, I think this this will have down-ballot implications if Republicans step up and say, you know, I, I agree with them. Maybe I'm going to question Trump, too. 
George. Well, I want to echo what Dave and Ed said, but uh, completely disagree at the same time. Uh, I echo the part about Krista Kafer, and clearly a very credible Norma Anderson, I think, was my state senator back when I was a young man living in Jefferson County. But I disagree completely with the legitimacy of the lawsuit for a couple different reasons. Uh, one is, yes, the attorneys involved in this are really driving the suit. The folks that they've named as petitioners, not as significant as the fact that you have the attorney for the Democratic Party and the just recently former Solicitor General who unsuccessfully argued the case against 303 Creative in the Supreme Court pushing this. But here's the killer. That section that Dave read there from uh, the 14th Amendment was Section 3. If you drop down two sections to Section 5, it makes it clear that it is Congress and Congress alone that is empowered to pass laws and enforce this particular amendment. And ain't nobody on that lawsuit a member of Congress. An absent Congress taking some sort of action to empower private individuals who make up this petition, this case should be dumped just off of standing grounds. That's aside from all of the novel arguments that they've tried to make, and Dave's hit upon them with what constitutes an insurrection, what constitutes engage in. I don't know that we're ever going to get to those particular arguments because the people that have filed suit here aren't empowered to do it by the Constitution of the United States. Did they surely knew that? Oh, I, I'm certain if you read the 115 pages, and I haven't, but I have skimmed a whole lot of it, and uh, many of the words look familiar. But uh, what I've detected from all of this is that they recognize it's a problem and they try to dance around it. But I don't know how you get, a, get away with the specific language of Section 5 that makes it very clear. Congress has the power to. Only Congress, not private individuals, not a governor, not a secretary of state, not an attorney general, not a president, just Congress. David, your thought I, on that? I would disagree on that. Section 5 of the, the 14th Amendment uh, grants Congress a new power to... Uh, to enforce, uh, like, you know, to effectuate uh, the rest of the 14th Amendment. But the text of that is not an exclusive power. And so I, I, as the authors of the Law Review article all over, Section 3 doesn't have any limitations like that. Now, you know, you, you can come back and forth and, you know, maybe uh, whoever at the Attorney General's office has the task of defending the suit will be, is, may, might be taking notes right now and thinking about that. I, I think we have the, the record of 14th Amendment enforcement, um, including of Section 1, is, is not limited to Congress, even though Congress is given a non-exclusive power uh, to enforce it, to uh, augment its enforcement. Well, I would just say, if that's the case, then why put it in there at all? Why empower? If everybody has the ability to file this suit and, and to enforce it, why put in Congress's uh, specific reference in Section 5? But I'll say oh, this, too. Okay. Section 3 also doesn't make any specific reference to the President of the United States or Vice President, only to their electors. And the other thing is this may be our very first CIO bet. <laughs> By the way, Dave's way smarter than I am yeah. in this price range. And I'd like to say it, it isn't the first CIO bet. We've done many. What is it about the... They've the, always, the always ended in disaster and tears. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I've lost them all. <laughs> Please all right. join in this one. Thanks to you both, all of you. Since Colorado voters voted to decriminalize a handful of psychedelics last year and gave the okay for healing centers, our state now wants to hear from everybody as to how this is going to work. The State Department of uh, Revenue started up a series of meetings this week and they'll go for another four weeks. They want to hear from everyone, David, um, on all sorts of different issues on how this will all play out. And, and good for them. 
remember, in, after the voters in Colorado, by constitutional amendment, re-legalized adult use of marijuana in 2012, you know, and they did it against the near-unanimous opposition of the entire political class, including one of our distinguished panelists, um, the state government nevertheless, in good faith, went ahead and worked to set up a highly regulated, functional system of legal adult marijuana sales, as opposed to California, where the, the government completely bungled it and, and ended up just making the black market all the stronger because it was so excessively restrictive. So, and Colorado did a such, such a good job on, on the marijuana issue that that ultimately helped lead some other states to also re-legalize adult use, seeing from Colorado that it, it could be done in a successful and responsible way. So I, I think they're off to a good start for the same thing for, for mushrooms and, and, and similar natural psychedelics. You have two state departments involved, the, the Department of Revenue, which had, now has a natural medicine division in it, and then the Department of Regulatory Agencies, which is guided in part by its natural medicine advisory board. They're expecting to issue the first licenses for healing centers uh, by the end of 2024. Uh, healing, you, you can right now cultivate for personal use or to give away to your friends mushrooms. But in a commercial sense, uh, you know, having a business, that's got to be, that's these healing centers and that's supposed to be supervised use. Um, in these centers. And, and just this week, an article came out in the Journal of the American Medical Association showing that psilocybin, the ingredient in, in, in psychedelic mushrooms, one-time supervised use had dramatic effects in reducing major depressive disorder with adults, and in fact, far larger than the typical regimen of you know, your, your daily antidepressant pills. Doesn't mean it's gonna work for everyone, but there's a lot of solid science behind making these centers available, uh, especially to people who are having uh, psychological issues. Ed. I think the big thing the state's got to do is it's probably got to start uh, getting rid of some misconceptions here. I think everybody expected that much like the legalization of marijuana, you're going to start seeing Marty's magic mushrooms pop up on every corner. Uh, this is a much different process. This is going to be healing centers. Uh, this is going to be a, a limited market for the folks going into that. Um, and I think that, in in sense, is what the state is also going to have to watch against. These are not going to be cheap um, natural medicines that you can get here. You are going to have to be in the presence of someone who is trained to supervise you through this content. That is possibly going to serve as an economic barrier to people who might want to use these mushrooms. Uh, in that sense, the state's gotta be very careful too to cut out the black market early on because if people see that this is going to be a more expensive drug, people are gonna be trying to undercut these legally regulated businesses. I think that's one of the tricks the state's gotta hear about how it does right. That's interesting. Is this disagree with Dave and Ed Day for me? Son <laughs> of a gun. Um, I'll say this. I think that uh, Colorado's experiment with marijuana at best has been a mixed bag, but when it comes to the black market, it has been a disaster. We were told that legalizing uh, recreational marijuana was going to lead to uh, the end of the black market. Uh, it hasn't. It emboldened it. It professionalized it. We've never seen more black market marijuana grown, not just in the state of Colorado in places like 55 and older community homes. I was at a place where they pulled 1,100 plants out of like a 2,500 square, uh, square foot home. It was like Jurassic Park in there. Um, same thing in, in BLM land, uh, other federal lands. 
marijuana has gone cuckoo for cocoa puffs in terms of the black market, largely because of the things that Ed talked about and Dave talked about. When you allow people to produce it inside their homes, the incentive for them is to not go through the regulated portions of the market. And even though we tell them you can't sell it to them, you've frozen law enforcement at the doorstep now by making it legal. And the other thing that you're going to see is because of the regulation, because of the cost, the incentive is going to be there financially, too, to figure out a way to sell it cheaper or, or buy it cheaper from your neighbors, your friends, and other folks out there. Um, whatever bad comes from this, I want to be clear about this. Colorado voters get their way. And uh, we had the debate, we lost the debate, and now we're going to deal with the aftermath. Okay. Patty. Well, I want to go see this retirement community that George <laughs> just visited. <laughs> Sounds fascinating. If you just watched the uh, Sanjay Gupta piece on CNN, the number of seniors who are using marijuana for medicine is fascinating. So maybe they're just helping themselves and keeping their bills lower. But to go on to the psychedelics, Good for the state having these hearings. We also have a task force that is supposed to work to come up with the right regulations. And when you look at the people on that task force, you have Dr. Sue Sibley, who's based in Arizona, who's been doing incredible work with veterans with PTSD issues, using marijuana, using psilocybin, and how those have really helped. You have Dr. Clarissa Pencola Estes, who is also an expert with native healing, with using that for psychological work. So these people have been doing really serious work. Let's have everyone talk. Let's have George go to one and talk about the horrors of crime. But there are ways we can make this work more smoothly. So the more people who talk about the good and the bad and the regulators put them into the rules, the better off we'll be come 2024. This week, the Colorado Chamber of Commerce released a survey from its members from businesses showing that state regulations are becoming an extreme burden on them and add to a level that hasn't been seen in any other state. Yeah, uh, the pollster uh, that was working for us said they were shocking the results. Almost every other state right now, you ask business what the biggest problem is, and they say it's a lack of workers. Uh, in Colorado, 11% agreed with that. 48% of business owners said, no, it's the regulations. And we're talking about everything from the employment regulations, such as the creation of the uh, family medical leave uh, program, to kind of some of the upgrades this year in, in harassment law, to environmental regulations, to regulations involving fees. The underlying message of this, though, and I think one stat stood out to me, is that of businesses that operate in multiple states, 39% said, we're going to expand elsewhere because of this. That's two of five businesses that are operating here that are saying, we're closing the door to Colorado expansion. We're going to look at our other states. 44% said, maybe both. We'll consider both. But still, you've only got, in a state that used to be the hotbed of businesses wanting to relocate here and expand here, only 17% of businesses operating in multiple states said, yeah, we're definitely going to Colorado with our expansion. These regulations need to be understood. And, and we can debate the need for these regulations all we want, but it, the cost needs to be understood in terms of the jobs that won't come here, the jobs we won't be able to give uh, the students who are graduating from Colorado schools if businesses don't feel it's a place that is business friendly anymore. Ouch. Not good. George? I am shocked, shocked 
that if you increase the cost of an input for business, they try to figure out a way to use less of it or find a cheaper replacement for it. And that's what Ed's talking about here with businesses saying, we're gonna go elsewhere where they don't have to deal with these burdens. I'm taken with the study in part, the, the polling, because it focused a ton on the impact of all of these employer-driven and employment-driven regulations. This should come as a surprise to no one. These are exactly the things that voters were told about at the time that uh, family was put on the ballot. They're the things that the legislature hears from the business community and, and the chamber every single time they try to come up with another increase in the minimum wage or another benefit that they're gonna give that employers have to provide to, uh, to employees. Um, this doesn't surprise me, but it saddens me, and I think we're only going to see it get worse in the future if this poll turns out to be accurate. Mm -hmm. Patty. Well, it's interesting because it also works within the state where you have people looking outside of Denver because the minimum wage is lower outside of Denver. So you have restaurants that are going more to the suburbs and they're finding slightly better fees. I also want to localize it with homes where I think residents, especially in Denver, are suddenly looking at their sidewalk fees and the other things that their trash fees they're now paying for, adding to the property taxes that everyone is going to be paying more for around the state. So I think we're going to see a lot more discontent come December when people look at those bills. Mm -hmm. David? So the problem is not taxes, according to this poll. You know, the, the Tax Foundation's uh, ranking of state business climate index says Colorado is number 21 out of 50 in, in tax climate for businesses. So, you know, about in the middle. And that's partly because our taxpayers' Bill of Rights, which requires voter consent for tax increases, has kept at least Colorado's taxes in, in the, the medium range rather than the disastrous range. But the regulations are getting worse and worse. George McGovern, far-left senator from South Dakota, for whom I volunteered in his 1972 presidential campaign, later ended up running a hotel in Connecticut and wrote a Wall Street Journal editorial. He said, you know, man, if I'd been running a business before I'd been in the Senate, I sure would have done a lot of things differently because I understand now how difficult it is to make payroll at the end of the month and all those things. And we have now a legislature that doesn't understand anything that Senator McGovern did learn. They started out by copying California, which shows you can take the Golden State with all these resources and destroy the middle class uh, and make a, a state dysfunctional. And now they've gone beyond California. So rather than copying California, we're first in the nation and California is copying us. Um, if, if you want a thriving economy with people able to have jobs, this state government and the Denver city government are on the opposite track. There was another survey that came out this week that said one in three Denverites is stressed out about their finances. But they did say 64% said they're confident about their financial futures. So we're going to end this conversation on a happy note. Okay? All right, good. Here's something else. The story that is the talk of the town is what is happening at the University of Colorado. The football team had one win last season, but after last weekend's game with Coach Prime in the helm, they are now 22 in the top 25. Our lone CU grad here, start this conversation for us. First off, go Buffs. Uh, I spent seven years at CU, much like Tommy Boy, uh, but it was undergrad. <laughs> it was undergrad and law school, so go Buffs. Um, this thing is not just sweeping Colorado. It is intense here, especially when you are, when I went to college, you're used to the McCartney years, the success, and then you've had the dry desert with a couple good points. But this is it, man. I've got a buddy of mine who was my college uh, roommate who lives in Washington, D.C., retired Army colonel, 
And he has built up this alumni club, this fans. They had three bars filled with CU grads from the Washington, D.C. area watching this game. That's not even here in Colorado. I think that Prime is on the verge, if this continues the way it's going. Um, one, a lot of people start naming their kids Prime. No, I, I don't know if that's true. But I do think it's going to remake the NCAA. Uh, we don't have long-term contracts with players the way they do in the NFL, and this whole portal nonsense and the ability to be able to shift in 56, 57 players and remake a team for success, I don't know what college football is going to look like in two or three years, but right now it looks pretty darn good for CU. And boo, Big Red. Mm -hmm. Patty, this is fun to watch. It is fun to watch, and we had Coach Prime on our cover this week, and it was a much nicer story than, say, when we had McCartney on our cover 30 or some years ago. Uh, I will say this, and I wouldn't have thought I would have said it a month ago, Coach Prime was probably a really good investment for CU, unlike, say, John Eastman. Okay. Yeah. All right. Three key facts. First of all, Nebraska fans are renowned for being really nice to visiting teams, friendly hospitality, so be nice to them. Second, you have to respect Nebraska's support for its teams. Just a few days ago, Nebraska, the university, hosted the world's largest sporting event by attendance ever for female athletes. 92,000 people seeing the, the Nebraska vo women's volleyball team uh, play in a tournament in, in the, the football stadium. And third, just a warning, if this is a rivalry game, CU only has 12 players who came from Colorado. Nebraska has 53. And even if those 53 were too young to remember the great rivalry days, their parents and their grandparents do. So let's give a little, there may be a little edge for Nebraska in, in rivalry intensity. Okay, you sound very prone about from Nebraska and you live in Boulder. I'm, I'm, I'm just setting the facts. You, you, you can't get <laughs> caught, so caught up in, in your home team that you ignore oh, the strengths on. of the other side. Oh, come on. Let's have some fun. <laughs> Let's get caught up. Uh, economic business, I mean, for turning around a program, for a school program is huge. Yeah, go big green in this there you sense. Go. <laughs> uh, let's put it this way. A couple of years ago, Visit Denver did an economic impact study on the Great American Beer Festival. It brings in about 60,000 people. It expected about a $35 million impact from that. The CU Stadium holds 50,000 people. There are at least six home games a year, and at this point, they're going to be bringing in, much like the Great American Beer Festival, a lot of folks from out of state who are going to be needing hotel rooms, who are going to be eating in, in uh, restaurants, clearly uh, cluttering up the bars. This could be an economic boom for the Boulder area that I suspect will spill well beyond the city into the surrounding areas. So in that, um, go, uh, go Coach Prime. Thanks for the economic lift. There you go. And shoulder to shoulder, we will fight, fight, fight. There you go. All right. Now let's go to some of the highs and lows of this week, either in Colorado or elsewhere. We start with Patty, as always, with the not so great. Well, let's bring it back to the November election. We probably will not see the strong mayor initiative on the Aurora ballot because of some of the most insane shenanigans we've seen in a proposal. Petitions being turned in late, maybe pressure on people. There's one last hearing that's been held. The county clerk has until, the Aurora clerk has until September 11th to decide whether that strong mayor initiative is done for 2023 or not. I think we won't see it. Mm -hmm. Some of the Colorado taxpayer dollars that go to the federal government then go to the Palestinian Authority 
run by Mahmoud Abbas, who just gave a speech this week uh, saying that Hitler had the right idea, uh, the Jews weren't re the Jews, all the Jews that he persecuted weren't real Jews, and besides that, they deserved it. Your taxpayer dollars are funding his uh, educational programs to incite new generations in hatred and anti-Semitism. Wow. Okay. Anybody who didn't look at Russia as one of our main enemies was already blinded. But the continuing news that comes out about the unfortunate plane crash that killed Yevgeny Priyazhen, the, uh, the Wagner Group leader, really should paint Russia in the light of a rogue state at this point that is using very open assassination tactics to take out uh, people who are only suddenly uh, opposed to Vladimir Putin. We need to treat Russia like we treat North Korea at this point, not like a fellow state. Yesterday, uh, my old district attorney's office issued a report on an incredibly tragic death of a 14-year-old uh, boy who had armed himself with a gun, and he and his compatriots, masked up, hooded up, went in and robbed a liquor store owner uh, by threatening that gun. A chase ensued with the police, a foot chase. The police uh, tackled this 14-year-old to the ground. He continued to struggle for the handgun, and the police used lethal force to stop him. Uh, after a three-month investigation and a 14-page report, the district attorney's office determined that that lethal use of force was appropriate uh, within an hour of the release of that report. An elected legislator from southwest Denver, Javier Mabri, uh, went to Twitter to proclaim that the officers involved were murderers. Uh, that's the kind of divisive, unsupported rhetoric that makes this community and this city worse off when such a tragedy takes place. The question isn't, is that officer the murderer? The, uh, murder? the question ought to be, how did these 14-year-old kids put themselves in a position to try to rob a liquor store owner and then take on the police? All right, now something positive, Hattie. Boulder is not all about football. G uh, Governor Jared Polis just went to Chautauqua to announce the new poet laureate for Colorado, Andrea Gibson. So that's great. That is good. Some people say early presidential debates don't matter, but maybe they do. A new CNN poll shows Donald Trump's support among Republican-leaning voters is now down to 37 percent. So about two-thirds of Republicans want somebody else. And also helpful in debate that somebody else, uh, one candidate has been plummeting since the debate is Vivek Ramaswamy because he's a very good speaker and if you hear him for the first time you'd think oh I agree with a lot of his ideas uh, but the debate exposed that he's really kind of a slippery chat GPT uh, fabrication um, you know sort of in the, in the same a descendant of the Dr. Oz uh, rather than a, a real uh, an entrepreneur who's making money off the campaign and, and boosting himself rather than somebody serious about governance. This could be a little bit of a hybrid pat on the back, but Governor Polis issued an executive order this week uh, that's asking, directing the state agencies to increase the number of apprenticeships, internships, other work-based learning opportunities they are offering. Uh, it's a really good step. Uh, doing this is going to get a lot more kids involved in career thinking and career pipelines. Uh, but I also want to add the caveat that Polis also encourages business to do this too. That's great. Business should be thinking about that, but the governor needs to understand, particularly for small and medium employers, there is a financial and administrative barrier to doing this on their own. And he ought to do more than just encourage them and think of ways to incentivize them to try to get involved in this program. 
There's been a narrative in a certain part of the ideological spectrum that uh, some of the January 6th uh, rioters, insurrectionists, whatever word you want to use, have been held at the bottom of a deep, dark well without access to food and water and medicine and attorneys and all sorts of things in violation of their constitutional rights. Uh, that narrative has been pushed for a lot uh, by a lot of people in my party. Uh, this last week, Ken Buck, congressman for the Fight and Fourth Congressional District, came forward with a letter that dispelled all of that with facts that are readily available and uh, easily checkable, suggesting that that is not only false, but that the only people that remain in custody are 20 folks, 85% of whom are accused of assaulting police officers, the other 15% of whom are charged with varying weapons charges from that event. And my hat's off to Ken for taking on uh, some of the narrative in his own party at a time when it would be easy to just remain silent. My pause of this week is feedback that we are getting from our viewers. Thank you all for being so involved with the show. We are always eager to hear from you, especially with our most recent reminder for polite opinion giving. Uh, no, that did not come from my mother. Rather, Tamara wrote in, uh, referring to one of our conversations after the most recent round of Trump indictments. Tamara said she's not a Republican, but that when one of our panelists said that Republicans should have an IQ test, well, she thought that was over the top. To Tamara and all of our viewers, I love that our panelists express all their different ideas and opinions. I believe we need to hear each other's perspectives, no matter how different they are from how we feel or what we do. Um, I must say, we do a fabulous job of being very polite on most days to each other, right? And we appreciate you, we hear you, and we will, it's a good reminder, right team? Right team? Right. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Tamara. Thank you all. Have a great week, everybody. Thank you for watching from home or on your device. And for those of you who are listening on our podcast, we love you as well. I'm Kyle Dyer. We will see you next week here on PBS 12.